Esta será seguramente la última oportunidad en que me pueda dirigir a ustedes. La Manito Muerta. Hello to all of you listeners. You are here in the first episode of my podcast, The Little Dead Hand. I am psyched that you're here, curious and interested. But wait, if you wandered here for the very first time, after just randomly zapping in the kingdom of podcasts, and you have no clue what is this all about, then I suggest you take a small step back Listen to the short promo episode, which is kind of an important introduction to all the episodes to come, so you know what to expect. And now to officially start the show, drum roll please! You are probably wondering what is the voice in Spanish that we hear at the intro music, right? Well, this is the voice of Salvador Allende, the elected president of Chile in 1970, and this is actually an insert from his last speech in September 1973, just minutes before he was killed. I wanted to mention this so you wouldn't be in the dark regarding the mysterious voice in the intro. However, he was such a complex character that he deserves a full episode of his own. Today, we will be talking about Glicenti 1910. A gun that appears in the first act will fire in the third act. So says the cliché from the theater world, right? Well, in our case, not only the gun will fire, but also rifles, cannons, tanks, and even airplanes bombarding the Casa de la Moneda the presidential palace in Santiago, capital of Chile, in 1973. Before we dive into the first chapter, whose name is Glicenti 1910, I owe you an answer to the riddle I asked in the introductory episode. Remember? Why does the book include only 11 stories? As you can imagine, I had many more stories to tell, and yet I decided symbolically to limit myself and stop at 11. So first, thank you to the listeners who did answer the riddle. The answer, of course, is September 11, 1973. is the day of the military coup in Chile. Or, as we Chileans like to say, with a bit of black humor, the first 9-11. Not the one everyone knows from the terrorist attack by Al-Qaeda organization in New York and in Washington, D.C. during the Bush administration. My fellow Yankee friends, we were 28 years ahead of you. So yes, the military coup in Chile happened on this date quite by chance, because it was originally planned to take place on the 18th of September, which is Chile's Independence Day. You see, the military wanted these two events Independence Day and the Coup Day to be united so they will be entwined forever. Anyhow, that plan didn't work out for the damn generals and the agents of the CIA 
Yes, you've heard right. The American intelligence agency was the mastermind behind the planning and the financing of the military coup in Chile. With a little bit help from my friends, right? They feared the information will leak and they would lose the element of surprise and therefore it was finally decided to advance the day of the coup by exactly one week. I could say karma is a bitch, but I don't believe in karma. Or rather, I choose not to believe in karma. Why? It's a long-time dispute I have with the whole New Age movement, but we'll get to that in another episode. Back to the date of the military coup. Why were they so afraid of losing the element of surprise? Well, about two months before, on June 29th, there was already an attempted military coup that failed. This attempt was nicknamed El Tanquetazo in the local Chilean jargon because of the use of tanks and armored vehicles in the streets. Later on, we will talk about the circumstances and why did it fail, but in the meantime, that failed attempt of June 1973 is a heck of a good starting point for our story today. I will add that I only learned about this story in 2018, quite by chance, from a relative of mine, my father's cousin. In 1971, my father, David Silverman, was appointed to the position of general manager of the copper mine in the town of Chukicamata in northern Chile, under the government of elected president, you guessed it, Salvador Allende. In those days, it was the largest open pit mine in the world. The trucks that transported the copper from the depths of the earth only their tires were the size of a two-story building. Imagine how impressive it was to stand next to these giant trucks, even more so for a nose-running four-year-old like me, as I saw them for the first time. Copper, that orange metal, is widely used in Chile, in the arts, in jewelry, in daily items, in kitchenware. Heck, I even bought once socks that contain copper threads. They say the minerals in the copper absorb bad odors, so it's good for athletes, right? However, the copper, from an economic and political stand, has a huge role in, in Chile throughout history. You see, copper was and still is Chile's largest source of income, and after Allende was elected in 1970, his very first step was the nationalization of the copper that was mostly in foreign hands. The export of copper was the solution to fund all the reforms that the socialist president was planning to implement. The copper was of enormous importance, both to Allende's government and also to the unrelenting attempts of the United States to sabotage both the production and the export shipments of the Chilean copper. After all, these were the words of the President of the United States at the time, Richard Nixon, and his foreign minister, Henry Kissinger, who coined the term, we want Chile's economy to scream. 
Let's get back to our story today, which begins with my father appearing at his cousin's doorstep and asking, Tell me, do you still have the key to Tio Shloime's apartment? Tio Shloime, Uncle Shloime, was a particularly beloved uncle to us as children. He was one of my paternal grandfather's six brothers. They came to Chile when they were still minors at the beginning of the 20th century from an area called Bessarabia in Eastern Europe, Moldova of today. Grandpa, in which country Bessarabia is, I would ask? It depends on the year you ask, depend on which war was happening at that particular time. Grandpa would always answer me. They fled the persecution and the constant hostility they suffered, and especially the new decree for World War I, the mandatory lifetime conscription for the men in the region into the Russian army. So, the family packed up their belongings and arrived eventually to Chile. I am not sure if Chile was the planned final destination, assuming they heard good things about the country from acquaintances who had already arrived there. Or perhaps they told the captain, hey, take us to America. And he didn't exactly pay attention to which country in the American continents they were referring to. In any case, in those times, many countries in the southern continent encouraged immigration from Europe, thinking this would allow them to leap over a few generations ahead in terms of progress and technology. It is difficult to dispute this kind of argument. But, on the other hand, we need to acknowledge that this also reinforced the damage already caused to the indigenous people and their suffering which dates back to the days of the conquistadores, when the Spanish, the Portuguese, and other European nations discovered America and its resources. In any case, the family settled in Chile, or, as my grandfather used to say, we arrived on a Tuesday, and by Wednesday morning, we were already walking around with little trays hanging from our necks, selling all kind of pechivkes, which means knickknacks, door to door without knowing a single word in Spanish. Tio Schloime was the second youngest out of the seven brothers, and as such, the burden of earning a livelihood didn't fall on him with the same weight as on the older brothers. He studied medicine, graduated successfully, representing a source of pride for the immigrant family. And over time, he became the authority for all health issues and the medical consultant for all the members of the extended family. In 1948, when the War of Independence in Israel broke out, Tio Shloime, in a burst of Zionism, or perhaps a combination of boredom, courage, and a desire for adventure, he decided to volunteer and travel to Israel and help in the birth of the nation, as he called it. In the war, he participated in a convoy whose mission was to liberate Um Rashrash, a.k.a. the city of Eilat, the southernmost point in the new country. 
Shloime was the battalion's doctor in that convoy, treating the wounded and closing the bag on the dead. At the end of the war, he returned to Chile with many stories of heroism and with an ancient gun that he brought with him as a souvenir from the war. It was a Glissanti 1910 model made in Italy. The antique gun had a butt made of sanded and polished wood. It was very pleasant to the touch because the original butt was probably lost in some previous war. Schloime made sure to register the gun legally with the authorities in Chile and to issue a license for it. And he would show it off at every family gathering. Let's go back to August 1973. Schloime decided to travel to Israel again just to see how the country I assisted to give birth developed. Right? Or maybe he just wanted to look into the possibility of immigrating to Israel in order to escape the socialist government just recently established in Chile. That's my speculation. He entrusted the keys to his apartment to his niece, who lived at the time one floor below him in the same building. My father went to visit her with the purpose of taking his uncle's gun the same ancient glissanti, to have for self-defense. You know, in case there would be any violent developments or a second coup attempt. At that time, of course, the president had an entourage of armed bodyguards, and the ministers also received security. According to my brother, who is older than me, my father's chauffeur was also his bodyguard. And there was another armed man who stayed with us at home. But I, being much younger, I don't remember those details. I don't think my father had any experience with firearms, except once as a child, when Tio Schloime took him and his brother Mario to shoot a few rounds in the snow, in the mountains of Faregiones, just above the city of Santiago. The cousin, she refused to hand him over the gun because she did not want to do so without Uncle Schloime's consent and also because of that lack of experience with guns. It is not at all certain that my father would have known how to operate this gun on his own. And finally, the main reason for her denial because she realized that this gun, should it be needed, will risk his life much more than save it. And on this point, she was of course right. What good is one old gun against a platoon of soldiers? If they come with the intention of arresting you, pulling out a gun will be interpreted by them as a threat, as danger, and they will not hesitate to open fire. And if they come in the first place with the intention of killing you, well, then it's better that they don't find you at all, right? What good will the old gun do anyways? Now, where did that gun end up and where it is today, I have absolutely no clue. But I decided to give it a renewed literary life and I planted it at the end of the story in the safe deposit box of 
that cousin, my aunt, in her apartment in Israel, where she hands it to me with that smooth wooden handle, so pleasant to the touch, when she finishes telling me the story. Just a small detail, which the readers will surely appreciate, right? A kind of closure to the story. After all, people like putting the toys back in place when they finish playing with them. And this is how the cousin concluded. In my mind, I know for sure that this gun, under no circumstances, would have saved him. But even 50 years later, she cannot help but feel guilty for denying him the gun. You can read the other details of the story in the book, of course, but it's worth remembering that we all have certain objects to which we form an emotional connection, no matter how trite, because they symbolize for us the longing for dear people we have lost. I, for once, knew in Boston two brothers who had a bit of fight over the right to inherit their deceased father's lawnmower. Yes, the lawnmower, which was already broken and it didn't function, but they both had sweet childhood memories of mowing the lawn with dad. Close your eyes for a second and take a deep breath. Can you feel the smell of cut grass rising in your nostrils? In the case of my family, life taught us not to get attached to objects, or at least minimize it as much as possible. Because, during the dictatorship years, the army would often invade our house in a kind of act of harassment. The excuse was that they were looking for classified documents, which may be hidden with us, but in reality, they came to harass, to intimidate and they destroyed personal letters, photos, and other household items. So you learn very quickly that it is not worth giving emotional value to material objects, so as not to hurt when they are taken away from you. It's also a way to fight back, because the soldiers become surprised and frustrated when they notice that you supposedly don't care and you don't attach any value to the objects they are destroying. So, you learn instead to express the longing and your feelings through thought and through the power of memory alone. I try to keep in my possession only objects that have a useful practical value. Surprisingly, when the moment comes to pack and move, or when someone passes away, it becomes easier to get rid of all the junk. So don't get attached to material things. That is my little advice today. At the end, it becomes quite an advantage. As I mentioned, the full Glicenti story, or should I say the literary version of it, you can find it in the first chapter of the book, La Manito Muerta. Before we finish, I would like to commend you for sticking with me and listening through my accent. I know it's not easy. When I decided to record the podcast also in English, I'm not sure if I told you, but there is a version in Hebrew and there is a version in Spanish. And I wanted to reach out also to English speakers 
and I was a little bit concerned with my accent. And there are options uh, outside today. There are certain uh, websites that uh, they provide you this service that you can type in text and they will record it in an artificial voice. So it's a very viable option. However, it is not me, you know. It takes away the personal touch. The, then I remember the funny story that when I lived in Boston, a friend of mine invited me to a library for the blind. And uh, he said that uh, he was looking for a, an opportunity to volunteer. And this sounded out like a great opportunity, uh, reading, recording books for the blind. And uh, he invited me to try that too. We came together. I was really excited about it. I really liked the idea. Uh, not only that you are helping people and uh, you're facilitating, you're giving them access to, to knowledge, to stories, to books. But uh, on a selfish side, it also served my, uh, you know, my uh, artistical uh, nature. They uh, welcomed us and then they brought us to the recording room. They explained how to operate all the, uh, all the equipment. It was really, really basic. The, they let us play with it for half an hour and record a book, get the taste of it and see if, if we even like the idea. I completely fell in love with it, I must tell you. This was way before the, the word podcast was out there. I really, really loved the idea of the recordings. And I recorded a children's book. I don't remember the name of it. And by the time I finished, I brought it to the manager. And after he listened, he became very serious. And he told me with a gloomy voice, you know, we appreciate very much your effort. However, you're not going to be able to volunteer here. And your accent is not clear. I don't know if it's Spanish or Hebrew or French. It's going to be very hard to understand you. And uh, I'm sorry, but we're not going to be able to work together. And I was so bummed. And I asked him, you know, maybe I can be just on the technical side. Use me as a technician. And he said, no, because here it's a one-man show. You, know, you come in, you operate your own uh, equipment, and you record a book. No, sorry, it's not going to work. So I went home, pretty sad. To make a long story short, maybe it's too late for that, he called me about three or four days later, apologizing, saying, listen, you have no idea what's going on here. All the children that come to the library, they want to hear your version of the book because they think it's very funny with the accent. I work here for many, many years. You never cease to learn. You never cease to be surprised. Please accept my apologies and come back to the library. We want you to record. It's going to be only children's books. This is your niche. So excited. I volunteered there for about three or four months. I recorded a few books. It was really fun. Who knew that some 20 years later, I would be here recording my podcast in English. So that was just a, a personal story. I feel for you that you have to cope with my accent. If you're listening right now, it means that you have uh, no problem with that. So thank you very much. Thank you for listening. And we'll meet again soon in episode number two. Bye-bye.